we will be discussing today, we'll be teaching in Mark, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And this is a passage where Jesus calls Levi the tax collector, and he's more commonly referred to as Matthew, one of the 12 disciples. And there's a few things that I want you to know today. Um, Number one is that Jesus has a call on your life. He has a call on my life. And number two, I want you to know that every calling faces opposition. And lastly, I want you to know that Jesus came to be with sinners. In fact, in some translations of this passage, the heading for this passage is Jesus calls Levi and eats with sinners. So I would invite you uh, to, to grab your Bibles, whether it's your phone or the Bible in the pew. That would be page 708. And join with me as we read Mark 2, verse 13 through 17. So Jesus calls Levi. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Pray with me. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the way you call us. And God, we just pray that as we dive into this a little bit deeper, we'll understand our own calling, we'll understand the opposition we face, and we'll understand uh, what you have in store for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so before Jesus ever preached his first sermon, he had already selected people to follow him. And, And Jesus was not interested in creating programs that the multitudes would follow, but in developing individuals that the multitudes would follow. And the men that he selected would not really impress us today. In fact, in Jesus' time, the, the people did not, uh, did not impress them at all. They were rowdy, they were insensitive, they were quarreling, envious, and bigoted men. A lot of them had common backgrounds and were social outcasts. But within these individuals, he would build his kingdom on earth. But I also thought, what would a modern school of ministry have to say about these choice students? So here's a, here's a possible admissions letter. Dear sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 young men you have referenced for to become students at our school of ministry. All of them have taken our battery of tests. We have not only run the results through our computer, but have also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our expert psychologist and our ministerial aptitude consultant. How very 21st century of us. It is our school's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education and ministry aptitude for our school. They do not have the modern team concept. And we would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience with ministerial ability and a proven track record. So here are a few of the profiles. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of violent temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas, 
demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine others' morale. And Matthew, the tax collector, he's been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. (laughs) James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, both definitely have radical tendencies and are registered with the Department of Homeland Security as suspected terrorists. (laughs) One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of broad ability and meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We highly recommend Judas Iscariot for a place in our school. All of the other profiles, well, they're self-explanatory. And we wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, the Jerusalem School of Ministry. So when Jesus calls Matthew, it reads that he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. No questions. No questions like, where are we going, Jesus? What's for dinner? Are we there yet? But now, you know, to share a little something about tax collectors, uh, in this passage, it says that Jesus went and he ate with tax collectors and sinners. So for me, that, that kind of puts these tax collectors in a completely different category. It's like, here's sinners, here's tax collectors, Right? But in most cases, if you were a tax collector for a region under Roman rule, you paid all the taxes up front. And so then it was up to you to get your money back, plus a little interest, right? So Matthew was probably just trying to be a good businessman, maybe just maybe taking a little too much from time to time, sticking his toe over the line. But, you know, that sort of thing did not sit well with the Jewish people. In fact, that sort of thing made tax collectors outcasts and just a couple notches lower than what we would consider sinners. But yet Jesus calls Matthew, and Matthew leaves everything. He leaves everything and follows him, no questions. So you see, there's no going back for Matthew at this point. You know, Jesus called Matthew, and he also called me, although I wouldn't say I was a tax collector, But I'd like to share a little bit of my story. Um, I was born near here in Alton, Illinois, and lived in the bustling metropolis of Bethalto, where my Bethalto peeps at. And we got one over here and one over here. All right. Uh, I will say that Bethalto West is the best. I know you guys all talk about the high schools that you're from, but in Bethalto, uh, not not so big. So it was all about the elementary school. And so Bethalto West was the best. (laughs) Bethalto East was the least. Sorry, Kelly McGill, wherever you are. She's a Bethalto Easter. Uh, But we lived in Bethalto until the age of seven when my father left his job as the chief radiologist for Alton Memorial Hospital. Uh, He answered God's call on his life and began a 35-year calling as a pastor. And so I moved around quite a bit as a result of that, moving from Illinois to Indiana to Florida to Tennessee back to Florida, to Colorado, and now Missouri. And I met my wife, Joy, on the very first day of college at the University of South Florida School of Music. And we met in the very first class, which was music theory. And fast forward two college transfers, and six years later, we started dating and ultimately married a year and a half later. So at this point, I had left that, and I had entered into the information technology field, where I had a career of about 20 years and finished up with a role as the vice president of uh, information technology for Fidelity National Financial 
and I manage two of their three data centers in the United States. Uh, translation from my wife means that I talked in a lot of acronyms, and uh, I got the late night, early morning phone calls that nobody wanted to get when things went really, really bad. But during all this time, my wife and I both used our gifts and talents to further the local church. We passionately served in music ministry together, all while doing this other thing, this technology thing, which honestly, for me, always felt like more of a means to another end. Um, that other end being church planting and serving as worship leaders, and ultimately as the elder for one of our first church plants. So in September of 2014, my wife and I were celebrating our birthdays, which are five days apart, and what's helpful for that for me is my birthday's first and her birthday's next. So as long as she remembers mine, we're in good shape. I have forgotten my own birthday. Um, but we were celebrating our birthdays at my in-law's beach condo. I think we got a picture of this place up here. Uh, often imitated, never replicated. This, uh, this place is amazing. We love it here. But it's a place for us to unwind, and we brought a few books with us that we wanted to catch up on. And occasionally we'd have one of those moments where we'd, kind of, we'd rib each other and say, hey, listen to this thing that I just, I just read. And so we'd share these nuggets of wisdom. Um, I was reading this book that was entitled Follow Me is by David Platt. And I got to a point in his book where he references a mission trip to India. And he begins to list all of the excuses why he shouldn't go. You know, first and foremost, you know, so 99% of the people here believe in something other than Christianity. And who was he to come to this place and impose his beliefs on, on these people? But as he states later, if he did not have the personal belief that Jesus Christ could be the personal Lord and Savior for this 99% of the people, and if he was not willing to give up whatever identity, whatever security, whatever comfort that he had, that he had wrapped up in other things, for the safety, the security, the comfort, the identity of who Jesus says he is and who Jesus was for him, then he was no better off than that 99%. Well, I did not stop my wife to share this nugget. I quickly closed the book and I ran down to the shoreline and stood there for a very, very long time. And I remember watching the waves roll out, watching the waves roll back in, and there was just a calming faithfulness to that, and how every time they rolled out, they always rolled back in. Well, after enough time for her to recognize that something was going on, she came down, and I began to share with her what I had just read. <laughs> I didn't understand it yet, but I knew that God was calling us at that time to leave our identity, to leave our comfort, to leave our security in whatever we thought we had it wrapped up in, and follow Jesus. Now that was the end of September, and by the beginning of October, a friend just happened to call us uh, with regard to a, um, a position at a large church in Colorado. So in September, we have this conversation, October, he calls, and two trips, nearly 20 interviews later and three months, we had left everything that we had known behind, and we had entered full-time ministry. See, God had been calling me for nearly 40 years, but it was when I got out of the way that he decided to move, and he moved quickly. Now, I had plenty of questions still. Plenty of questions like, God, how, how are you, you going to do this? I, I'm willing, I want to be obedient, but I don't understand. I remember him answering 
as simply as with something as a brick on a patio overlooking the Rocky Mountains. And this brick had this scripture on it. It said, he is able to do far more than we can ever ask or imagine, Ephesians 3.20. It was a mic drop moment for God, for me. And I will say that everyone faces opposition. Everyone, every calling faces opposition. I was no different, and I was no exception. And I will say, every calling faces opposition. It's important to understand this because I think as we understand the opposition we face, it can help to reinforce our calling. Now, the Pharisees called Jesus out for meeting with Matthew and all of his friends. In fact, the message states, states it this way, Later, Jesus and his disciples were at home having supper with a collection of disreputable guests. Unlikely as it seems, more than a few of them had become followers. Now, the religion scholars and the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company and lit into his disciples. What kind of example is this, acting cozy with the riffraff? Now, John discussed the healing of the paralytic uh, last week and, and the Pharisees' response then and, and says that Jesus knew their hearts, and he called them out there. And here's a moment where uh, it's not even their hearts that he hears, but they actually go to the disciples themselves. And uh, instead of going directly to Jesus, they, they go to the disciples. And it seems in Matthew 9, Matthew 9, 9 through 13, uh, is Matthew's recollection of this exact same story. And it says that Jesus was reclining um, reclining while he was eating. I think we all have this perception of uh, how Jesus and his disciples ate, you know, the Last Supper, Michelangelo, all 12 are sitting on the same side of the table so they can all get in the picture. <laughs> but the reality was they were likely reclining and relaxing. And I can imagine Jesus giving what I like to call the side eye. And uh, there's probably one image for side eye that, that was the first uh, representation that I have, and, and it's this one. Um, <laughs> Gary Coleman playing Arnold Jackson in the show Different Strokes. This was, this was the first time I ever saw a side eye with his, uh, with his response, what you talking about, Willis? And I kind of imagine Jesus overhearing the Pharisees going to his disciples, not to him, but going to his disciples and saying, who is this guy? that's acting cozy with these people. Now, just so you think that it's not just a, a, a people thing, it, it happens with animals too. Uh, <laughs> so I think God has given us the spirit of side-eye. Um, but I will say this, you know, once Jesus hears this, it prompts him to get up, you know, kind of does one of these, gets up and says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So, mic drop moment there for Jesus. There's no rebuttal from them at all. Now, I will say this, though. I, I, I think that the Pharisees, they get a bum rap. I mean, think about it for a moment. I mean, preachers vilify them in their sermons. Us Christians, we, we tend to talk about their legalistic ways. Uh, they had fierce opposition to Jesus and persecution of early Christians, and essentially, we refer to them as the all-around bad guys of the New Testament. But were they really all that bad? I mean, could we, could we be overdoing it? I mean, if you take a closer look, it says here the Bible includes almost 100 references to them. Other ancient historians confirmed their influence, and they emerged during a time that was more turbulent for Judaism than I think we understand. 
Judaism was struggling to maintain its identity. The priesthood was corrupt. Immorality was rampant. And the dominant spread of Greek culture was infiltrating everything about the Jewish way of life. So in light of this crisis, a group of laymen responded by sounding the alarm on their brethren. Only separation from all that was not Jewish would save the people and their faith. So people began to call this group the separated ones, or the Pharisees. But to be quite honest, as a group, the Pharisees really were the best that Judaism had to offer. I mean, these guys read their Bibles, they defended their faith, they respected tradition, called people to obedience, they sought purity, denounced worldliness, and maintained high standards. And they attended synagogue at every opportunity. I mean, it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It sounds like something that we would aspire to ourselves or that we would hope in our fellow congregants. So why do we disparage them so? I mean, why, why, why do we scorn their well-intentioned pursuit of righteousness? And I, I think perhaps it's because maybe we see a little bit of ourselves in the Pharisees. And I think maybe a more accurate portrayal of the Pharisees would hit a little too close to home. I think that we could be vilifying them to distance ourselves from them and from their misguided ways, and perhaps we're a little threatened by Jesus' teachings in much the same way that they were, and that scares us a little bit. But maybe the only way that we can feel good about our own pursuit of God's approval is by ridiculing theirs. After all, we all have a little Pharisee in us, which begs the question, how do we get that way? Like the Pharisees, why do we become so consumed with the rules of God that we miss a relationship with God? And why do we replace his love with his law? You know, Eugene Peterson, who is the one that is behind the the message translation of the Bible, he probably answers this question better than anyone else that I know. And so I would say, take take a look at this view, this picture here, um, as as I try to paint this word picture. Imagine yourself moving into a house with a huge picture window overlooking a lake with a grand view of mountains beyond. Snow-capped mountains, beautiful mountains. And you have a ringside seat before all of this beauty. The cloud formations, the wild storms, the entire spectrum of sun-illuminated colors. And the rocks and the trees and the wildflowers and the water. And at first, you're just captivated by this view. You sit and you stand and you look and you admire. You catch your breath. Several times a day, you interrupt your work and stand before this window just to take in the majesty and the beauty. And then one day, you notice some bird droppings on the glass. And you get a bucket of water and a towel and you clean it. And a couple of days later, a rainstorm leaves the window streaked and the bucket comes out again. One day, some visitors with some small, grubby-fingered little people come with them. And the moment they leave, you notice there are smudge marks all over the window. They're hardly out the door before the bucket comes out again. So you're so proud of that window. And it's such a large window, but it's incredible how many different ways foreign objects can attach themselves to that window, obscuring the vision, distracting from the vision. And keeping that window clean now becomes almost compulsive neurosis. You accumulate ladders and buckets and squeegees. You construct scaffolding outside and one inside. You have to get to all the difficult corners and the heights. 
you end up having the cleanest window in all of North America. But now it's been years since you've looked through it. And now you've become a Pharisee. You see, Jesus came to be with sinners. And this is one of the things that I absolutely love about Jesus. He's absolutely amazing and wonderfully attractive. He loved the people. He was filled with compassion for them. It says in chapter 1, verse 41, the people loved him. It says the people came to him from everywhere. In verse 45, everyone wanted to see Jesus. Everyone is looking for you. Verse 37, they would do anything to get other people to see Jesus, as we even heard last week in chapter 2, verse 4, when he heals the paralytic. The crowds came to him, it says today in verse 13. And when he said to people, follow me, they got up and followed him. Verse 14. They brought all the sick to Jesus and he healed them, including even Simon's mother-in-law. There's hope for everyone. He loved tax collectors and sinners and was quite happy to go and have dinner with them. He genuinely wanted to spend time with sinners. See, he didn't do this out of a sense of obligation, but this was part of his purpose. And it all came down to his priorities. And his priorities were how he spent his time. His purpose and priority was God first and others second. So as Don even shared a couple weeks ago, Jesus' priorities were to God first. In chapter 1, verse 35, Jesus got up early and went to pray. And then they were to people. Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. You see, the message that he preached was good news about the kingdom of God and the need for people to repent and believe. Repent and believe the good news. It was a message all about forgiveness, and it was good news especially for sinners, which quite honestly, everyone needed to hear. You see, for Jesus, forgiveness was an even higher priority than healing. That is good news for us all. Let me say that again. For Jesus, forgiveness was an even higher priority than healing. That is good news for us all. You see, everyone else, everything else that Jesus did was about acting out these two priorities. Because you see, knowledge just for the sake of knowledge is a waste. I mean, our theology has to affect us in such a way. It has to call action. It has to affect us and change our lives or else we are building our lives on the sands of foolishness and not the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has to be our cornerstone. And you see, the Pharisees, they became obsessed with the law. They, They became so obsessed with the law that they missed the point of the law. You know, the law wasn't supposed to be a a means of, of earning God's favor or earning a blessing from God, but rather the law was the framework by which we could understand God's heart. We could know his character, discern his will, and live one's relationship out with him. And nothing has really changed for us. You see, if we focus only on the rules... We miss the entire point of the rules. And ultimately, we miss God himself. So the Pharisees, they wanted to steer clear of the the disreputable guests. 
And we might view the tax collectors and the sinners from the sex much like we might view a drug dealer or a gang member or a thief or someone with mental illness or a homeless person. Because those people who we would prefer to keep on the edge of our safety zone are the ones that, um, you know, when the ick factor gets a little too high, when life gets a little messy, we prefer to keep them to a distance. And, and in many ways, we separate ourselves just like the Pharisees did. So the ick factor was high. The messiness factor was high for all of humanity. And Jesus still came for us. And if we had it all together, we would not need Jesus. But newsflash, none of us has it all together. So, so why? Why is it important to understand that Jesus has a call on our life? Why is it important to understand what to do when we face opposition? And why is it important to understand that Jesus came to be with sinners? Well, I think that when Jesus calls, you follow. And that usually means you leave something behind. For Matthew, it meant leaving everything behind. Once he left and followed Jesus, there was no going back. There was no being a tax collector again. Not just from the sheer fact that he'd left and he'd gone and followed in another guy's footsteps that was completely contrary to that. But he'd also changed his heart. And, and that is something to, to marvel at. But when you leave, you could also be leaving a, a sin problem behind. Something that is causing you to stumble. Could mean that you leave comfort. Could mean that you leave security. Could mean you leave safety. But I would say this. Always, always, always choose to go in the direction of the guy who was raised from the dead. You will never go wrong. But you need to identify and you need to understand the opposition that you face in light of your calling. For Jesus, it was the religious leaders. And for that, I would say seek life-giving relationship over dead, crusty religion any day. And that's exactly what Jesus did. The opposition you face, it may be the world. It may be the world around you. And it may be you. I know I can rationalize just about anything if given enough time and data And I think we all can do that. And so sometimes the opposition we face is us. We stand in our own way and we stand in the way of God. So third, you know, the sick need a doctor, not the healthy. Jesus came to be with sinners. And I will say this, that Jesus did not live a perfect life, die and raise from the dead just to make us better versions of ourselves or morally better people. He didn't die just to make you version 2.0. He didn't die just to make you just that much better than you were. He died and raised from the dead because we were spiritually dead, and he came to give us spiritual life. So Jesus came to bring spiritual life to those who were spiritually dead, and that is also good news for us all. You see, Dead people don't do anything. Let me, hear, let me say that again. Dead people don't do anything. And if you don't believe that Jesus can call and use a dead person, just look at Lazarus. I mean, this guy was dead three days. Jesus calls him from the tomb, and he points people to God. But I will say this. We cannot allow ourselves, in light of all this, and understanding that Jesus came for the sick and not the healthy. We cannot allow ourselves to be fat and contented sheep sitting in our safety and our comfort. 
We cannot allow ourselves to become consumer-driven in our worship and our rules, but rather expect to become missionaries right here and right now. We have to be about Jesus' priorities. God first, and then people. And that may mean a loss of comfort, and it may mean a loss of safety. So what to do? <laughs> what to do with all this? I, I always go back to the Great Commission. Uh, and I, I refer to the Great Commission as famous last words. And uh, anytime somebody has last words that they're sharing with a group of people, I, I think I better pay attention. And so this is a moment here where um, it's really the culmination of Jesus' time with his disciples. And it reads here from, from Matthew uh, chapter 28. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, Jesus' teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the Bible-believing religious people of his day. And however, in our churches today, I would say that the broken and the marginalized tend to avoid church. And, and here's, a, here's a quote from Tim Keller, who uh, was um, teaching pastor at Christ Redeemer in New York. And he says this, If the teaching and the practice of our congregations do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, we must ask ourselves if we are declaring the same message that Jesus did. Amen or ouch. I mean, people need to belong. They need to have a place where they can belong even before they choose to believe. That's critical. I mean, we have to be a place of openness, a place of love, no matter what and at any cost. Because the people that were most attracted to Jesus were the people that were nothing like Jesus. And yet they felt a sense of belonging with him, even when they doubted who he was. Belonging before belief is huge. We have to be a place where people can kick the tires of what it looks like to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We have to be a place where it's okay for people to ask the hard questions, as we even heard in our story uh, earlier from, from Dr. Halgren. It has to be a place where people can have a sense that we are accepted, we're loved, this is an open place, even when they may not believe that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. We've got to allow space for that to happen. And that, sometimes that's not something that happens in a matter of hours. Sometimes it's not something that happens in a matter of days. But we're talking about an investment, an investment that can take months. It can take years for somebody to come to a point in faith where they're ready to declare who Jesus is. And you see, this is the reason why we are still here. The Great Commission is the only reason that we're still on planet Earth right now. Jesus' priorities were to God first and then to people, and the same should be true for us. So what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you to, to pull out your bulletin. There's going to be a little uh, activity here. In your bulletins, there should be a tear-off. It's got five blanks on it. If you don't have a bulletin, pull out your smartphone, grab a piece of paper, jot it down, create a reminder, create a note. 
But what I want you to do is I want you to list out the names of five people in your life who may not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to pray about it. I want you to put their names on this list. And I want you to take it home with you. And for me, one of the things I like to do is I like to put it on my, on my bathroom mirror. And it's one of these things that you know, I'll, I'll see a couple times a day. And I can start my morning by praying for these people. Or I can end my day by praying for these people. And if you don't have five names that you can list down here, pray that God puts five names and five people in your path and an opportunity. But I would, I would offer that as you're praying, you would pray for opportunities that God would place those people in your path. And just as we even experienced earlier today, maybe, maybe it's a biblical picnic food challenge. You, know, you don't have to blindfold your guests, but I think a lot of us are probably busting out the grill maybe for the first time tomorrow. You're having a barbecue or you're having a picnic or you're having people around you. Think about these five people. Think about how you could be investing and in, in praying and perhaps invite them in. And, and it might be people you work with. It might be your neighbors. It might be family members. And you know what? Sometimes it's those closer relationships that feel a little riskier, don't they? Because we're really putting ourselves out there. But I would pray that you would take this moment, you would take an opportunity, and you would list these things out. List these people's names, even if it means being uncomfortable or unsafe. And here's what I want you to know <laughs> in this today, that Jesus is calling you. He's calling me. You need to know your opposition. Knowing your opposition and understanding that can sometimes help clarify your vision and your mission and your calling. And lastly, I want you to know that you need to seek out opportunities. Seek out opportunities to be a living witness for God. Would you pray with me? God, we, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the freedoms that we get to enjoy in a place such as America. We thank you for the service of so many who have given the ultimate sacrifice. God, we thank you for sending Jesus to be the ultimate sacrifice for us. God, we thank you that you call us. You call us even today. We thank you that you help us to understand the things that may be in the way of understanding and living into a relationship with you, God. We pray that you would put people within our paths, put people within our paths that uh, we would have an opportunity to seek out opportunities to invest in them. And God, we pray this all for your name and for your glory. Amen.